social media. We're all on social media. Everybody has a Facebook page. Most people have a Twitter page, Instagram, Pinterest, Parler. You pick it. There's all kinds of social media networks out there. But what I want to talk about this week is we're going to do this in two parts. In the first part, we're going to get kind of a better understanding of how social media works for us as consumers and what it does to us chemically speaking, psychologically speaking, inside our brain. I've got two experts. I've got one that'll talk about the marketing side of Facebook, and I've got one that'll talk about the experience on our end and what happens to us when we engage with social media. That being said, we all use social media differently. Some people use it for affirmation. They post their car selfies, and they'll add an inspirational quote. And it's almost as if the sole purpose is for you to comment on their post and say, oh my God, you look beautiful today. And if you need that, use social media for that. Personally, I don't use social media for affirmation. Personally, I really just use it to share kids pictures of my kids and the occasional college football rant. Uh, A lot of people use social media to talk about politics. I personally think that is a terrible idea. I do not believe that social media is the proper venue to have any type of a constructive conversation on politics or really anything that could become controversial. I think those conversations are best to be had in person. Uh, I find that people can kind of sit behind their keyboard and have no problem saying awful things to you that they would never say to you in person. So while a lot of people use social media to share their own personal political beliefs and to challenge the political beliefs of others, uh, I personally don't think that's a good idea. Uh, Then you've got the person that uses social media for food porn. They're constantly posting pictures of their dinner. That's fine and good. Whatever you're into. I try not to be so critical about people on social media. What I do, I just unfollow them. If you post too many political posts, and I don't care if they're leaning left, if they're leaning right, if they're anarchist, I don't care. For me, if I see too many political-themed posts from you on social media, that's an unfollow. Every time. Because a lot of times, most people are using those political posts to bait other people and to pick fights, and to create conflict where it otherwise doesn't exist. I don't think that is a productive way to use social media. Some people just use it to keep track of old friends and family. That's an excellent use of social media. But there are others who use it for more nefarious reasons. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago with the online dating, the romance scams, people who use it social media to catfish people. And as consumers of media and social media, and users of social media, you know, we all kind of have to uh, approach it the right way so that we're using it for a force for good as opposed to a force for evil. So let's start with the education. Our first guest this week is going to be Dr. Matthew Philp. He is a uh, psychology professor at Ryerson University in Toronto, Canada. And my first question to him was, uh, and I'm you know, kind of approaching this from a conventional media mindset. I work in radio. I make my living in radio. Uh, Radio is competing against social media uh, for advertising dollars the same way we're competing against TV stations and newspapers and magazines and everybody else. So my my first question to Dr. Philp was, why are more companies turning to social media to do their advertising? I would say there's two major reasons. Um, one is that's where the eyeballs are right now. Uh, you know, there's less and less people are watching TV, 
more traditional TV, let's say, um, less and less people are possibly listening to the radio, like maybe opting for a podcast, like these kind of things. So you're, the traditional media are losing the audience. Um, you can also say at the same time the traditional media is very saturated with content already. Uh, so every little piece that an ad can go in, there's an ad. So it's very, we're bombarded with, with ads in traditional media, but we also are in, in social media. The other side uh, of why it's being shifted to social media is um, uh, the, the focus of it. Like you can do what's sometimes called like hyper-targeting uh, or behavioral micro-targeting is another term that I've heard. Uh, so basically, let's say, let's take a, let's take a, this idea of, you know, you want to advertise a, uh, give me a product, <laughs> any any random product. Well, I, I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. I was at a, a friend of mine's house, and he had one of those robot vacuums. And I can't even remember okay. the, the manufacturer, but I remember looking at this thing docked sitting here, and I'm like, wow, I've never even seen that brand. Uh, I'm not kidding you. Hours later, I open up Facebook, and there's an ad for that very vacuum. I didn't, I didn't say okay. the name of the vacuum. I literally walked yeah. here. So I texted my buddy and I go, Hey, that, that robot vacuum in your, in your guest room, is that, is that on a, on a Wi-Fi network perhaps? And that was the only correlation that I could find, but let's, you know, talk to me about that. Let's just use the, the vacuum example. It's just a, a, a product to advertise. So you're, you're a company that wants to sell vacuums. Um, in the traditional media sense, like where would you advertise that? You would say, okay, my consumer is a, uh, let's just say a vacuuming advocate or something like that, or like, uh, does a lot of the home, uh, home care activities. So you would look for TV shows and magazines that match that type of consumer. So you would say, okay, we're a vacuum company. Let's advertise in like, I don't know if this magazine exists, but like home care monthly or something like that. Right. That makes sense because those are your viewers. So that's your target market is buying that magazine, so you put your ad in that magazine. But you're trying to make – you're making a jump. You're saying, okay, people that buy this magazine would like this product, therefore we're going to advertise in this magazine. But with online and that kind of thing, we don't need to be that specific. Uh, we don't need to say, okay, I only want to advertise with this content. I only want to advertise on these pages. We just say we want to advertise to these people. So we, we jump that – that cue and we go right to the person or right to the behavior. So in an online context, uh, when people go online and, and buy a product, that company now kind of can trace back the behavior of that person. Like this person saw our ads from this site. Um, you know, they behave or they, they, they navigate our site in this kind of way. They have all these behaviors. Here's their past purchases. Here's their past whatever they, they've done, or their past search history on Facebook. It's their likes and shares and anything they've done online. And then that company then says, okay, since this person bought our product, we're going to assume everyone else that has this similar behavior will also want our product. And so they then prioritize to advertise to those people. So we're advertising based on the behavior rather than the content we're looking at. That's why when you go to a website, and you see an ad, I'm, I might go to the same website and I'll see a different ad. You know, obviously in a, in a newspaper, that doesn't work. When we both pick up the same newspaper, we're both going to see the same ad. But on an online newspaper, we both look at it, we're going to see different ads because they're they're targeting to the behavior, they're targeting to the person, not, not the content. Uh, so I'm kind of getting off track, but jumping to your, your vacuum example, 
I think uh, you always hear these stories like, oh, I said Toyota and now I'm getting an ad for Toyota or whatever. Uh, or I, I saw this vacuum and now I'm getting ads for it even though I didn't say it. It could be a lot simpler than that, that it's just you're friends with this person and likely you and this person have similar behaviors and similar habits and you, you, they were targeted for this ad and you were targeted for the ad because you're both similar people. You're, you're friends, you likely like similar things and do similar things. So your behaviors might be similar in an online sense, and so you both saw the same ad. It could be as simple as that. So if you if you didn't go to that person's house, you might have gotten the same ad already. Okay, so it's a crapshoot, is what you're saying? Not necessarily crapshoot. It's it's a very sophisticated crapshoot in the sense that we these companies are like Facebook is is very good at, at assessing the behavior of people. So. You as a company, you basically go on the Facebook ad platform and you basically click a bunch of boxes saying, I want someone that fits these demographics and that likes these things and behaves in this way. Uh, and then there's this, there's this magic button called uh, lookalike audiences. And so when you click on that, it's, it's saying, okay, anyone that uh, we Facebook thinks would like this will then be advertised uh, the product as well. Is there a more effective strategy using social media to advertise as opposed to the traditional uh, media, or, or, or is this just still, you know, kind it's, of? It's a... just a lot more. Yes, yeah, it's, it's hyper targeting. So, like, imagine you advertise on a billboard, um, and a million people are going to see that. How many of those million people are actually going to buy your product? Like, how many of those million people are actually your target market to buy your product? So, it's it's the traditional media is kind of a. There's a lot of error. You're getting a big audience, but it's not very efficient. You're you're missing the target a lot of the time. Sure, one of your target markets, like one of your ideal consumers, might see that at the ideal time and be like, "Oh, great, a billboard or this radio ad or this TV ad." It came to them right at the ideal time. Like that's the crapshoot side of things. With with social media and, and online advertising, uh, the company picks the ideal person um, and the ideal time they want them to see it, and it. It goes as such. So it's a lot more, it's hyper-specific, it's hyper-targeted in the sense that we are seeing the ads because we meet the profile of that company and we're seeing the ad at right at the right time that they want us to see that ad. You talked about the way that we as consumers react to these ads that we see on social media. Uh, what's the science behind that? Oh, I, I probably have to be a little more specific than that. Like, well, how do we well, respond? Well, so I, to... You know, I, I know on our side, our radio station, you know, our, our social media posts are all about generating engagement. And it's, you know, it's one thing to have yes. your posts seen by millions of people. It's another to have thousands of comments. What's the trick to getting people to engage with these ads and not just see them? I've done some more specific work, like in the domain of, let's say, food. Um, so if you're a, a food content producer, like... Uh, like Bon Appetit or something like that, uh, where, uh, you know, the whole thing is you want people to engage with your content and your content happens to be food. Uh, you know, what are the, what are the characteristics of that food specifically that maybe ups your engagement? Uh, so from, from scraping, you know, millions of posts from, from these websites, uh, we found some evidence that says like, if you show food with higher caloric content, that people will more likely engage in with that content. So hitting the like button, commenting on it, sharing it with their friends, just because the food has higher calories in it. And our explanation, like if you go behind the scenes, our explanation behind that is uh, like almost from an evolutionary psychology standpoint that we've evolved as people to 
uh, get excited when we see food with high calorie content. You know, when we see a big honking burger, a big steak, you know, we internally, you know, we might, it's not at a cognitive level, but like our body gets excited. We, we, we see it, you know, our mouth might water or uh, the technical term is like it raises our affect. Uh, and then when our affect is raised, when we're a little more excited about things, we, we engage with that content, we behave and respond to it a bit more. So we will comment on it. We will share it with our friends. We will like that content uh, a bit more just because our affect has increased uh, a little bit. So, you know, hitting kind of these emotional buttons, these these kind of unconscious buttons, like trying to increase someone's affect uh, with certain content, that will increase their likelihood of engaging with that content. Is that a good thing? I mean, you know, there's, there's, there's the debate <laughs> it over It depends there. what you want with your goal is. <laughs> Well, there's the, if you want people to engage with your content from your radio station, then yeah, you. This is like the, the argument you see sometimes that all the news we see now is is very divisive or very, uh, you know, sad or extreme or these kind of things is because that's the content that gets engaged with the most. It's because it's one argument could be that it's it's jacking people's affect, and we then engage with it. And then when we engage with content online, the algorithms. And the little information I know about how these algorithms work, they push that content to, to more people. So the, if content's being engaged with, more people are going to see it. And then when more people see it, it's going to kind of create a snowball effect. And then more people are going to engage with it, et cetera, et cetera. But if you just show content that's very boring, no one's going to engage with it, and these algorithms aren't going to promote it in their, in their feeds. And so no one else is going to see it. So as Dr. Philip said, it's all about engagement. And then that's the same for us as users. Uh, think about when you post a picture, how many times do you go back and look to see how many likes that picture's gotten? How many times do you look to see who's commented? Do you like the comments that people made? Do you respond to the comments that they made? And there's some science behind this. Our next guest is Dr. McConaughey Chalk. She's an associate professor in the communications department at the Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse University. And my first question to her was, why is social media so addictive? It's social. Um, <laughs> we are social beings. And so we tend to respond to other people um, in ways that are different from, say, the way we would respond more passively to other types of media. So to some extent, there's this you know, tendency to, we want to communicate with others. We want to respond to other people who are on the other end of this. Um, and so we connect with social media in ways that we don't to other types of media. Now, there are other things about it as well, including the types of rewards that we actually receive from when we post something and someone likes it um, or someone shares it or does something else in some way that, you know, indicates that they uh, are responding to what we said, you know, admiring what they what we said, that we tend to, we actually get a little bit of a, sort of a, a it affects the brain chemistry. We get a little hit of cortisol. Um, you pick up your phone and you get that like, and it's like, ooh, that's awesome. Uh, and after a while, it becomes this thing where you keep wanting to get those hits. So you keep coming back to check. And you notice when you post something, when you come back and check and see if someone liked it. And if they didn't, you actually feel a little anxious. I'm sorry, it wasn't cortisol. Cortisol is what you get if, if, you're, <laughs> if you don't get a hit. Uh, you actually get a little hit of the sort of you know, the more positive endorphins, of you think? neurochemicals. Endorph yes, endorphins, excuse me. 
I'm sorry, it's it's relatively <laughs> the endorphins and other hits of, of types of things that we're actually looking at. So we wind up with this type of positive hit that we get from actually looking, um, seeing a like, seeing a positive response to what we actually do. And after a while, if we get enough of these, there tends to be this, you know, we keep wanting to get that fix again. So we go back and we keep checking. Um, and if we don't get one, we actually feel anxious and worried. Uh, and we want to alleviate that stress by checking in and seeing what's actually going on with what we posted. I, I, I feel like, you know, the, the endorphin rush that you get from looking mm-hmm. at these phones and, you know, before you know it, you're looking at your phone every five minutes or so. And if you're cognizant of it, you can kind of yep. stop yourself and say, I just looked at the phone. Like, what, I get two or three more likes for that picture of my kids? What does it matter? Mm-hmm. People have actually developed techniques to keep themselves from looking at their phone. There are, um, in some cases, for example, if you go out with a group of friends someplace and ways in which people try and stop themselves from checking their phones is they may do things like stack all the phones on the table and the first person who checks their phone has to buy the next round. Um, there are actual apps that have been designed to keep people from checking their phones. There's one in particular that uh, if you don't check your phone for a certain period of time, you grow a tree. And if you check in, you know, before an hour is over, you kill the tree. Uh, so they act, we've actually had to develop technological apps to keep us from checking our phone because we do tend to check it constantly. We want to look. We keep wanting that next hit uh, to see what's actually going on. Well, and it's and it's come. Um, so it's, it's become and, kind mm-hmm. of a physical addiction. I mean, I'll find myself opening mm-hmm. up Facebook, and I'm like, "You were just at Facebook." I, I mean, and it's like yep. you know, uh, for me, like especially you know, working, I'll record a story, and then I'll instinctively pick up my phone, and it's like nothing has changed in the five or ten minutes mm-hmm. since you last looked at the phone. But it's it's that that inherent need for that endorphin rush that keeps us grabbing for the phone. And it is. We keep coming back. We want to take a look at it, and then. If we're separated from our phones, particularly if we hear our phones dinging somewhere in the background or something along those lines, we can sometimes, it actually increases stress. And we have this sort of negative reaction. Have you ever lost your phone? Um, that sense of intense panic where you start running around, what happened to my phone? Oh my God. Uh, and there's this, you know, it, it senses, you know, it's, it's this separation anxiety from losing this device that actually lives in your pocket. And it's not mine, not monetary. We're not thinking about, you know, oh, I've lost my phone. It's going to cost me a few hundred to get it back again, whatever it is. It's that actual sense of you're separated. You're missing out. There's something called the fear of missing out, FOMO. Um, and we have this constant uh, need to address this. And for some people, it's a greater extent. You know, we have a greater um, fear of missing out than others. But there is this sort of underlying, we have to keep checking. We need to know what's going on. Um, and it can be very stressful. And as far as like, as far as users, uh, in my personal experience, you know, you, you, you have these friends who kind of fall into these categories of like problem users, we'll call them, you know, you've got the mm-hmm. overposter, you've got the, you know, the, the mm-hmm. person that, that seeks daily affirmation every day by posting a selfie of themselves in their car. And, and I feel like it, they mm-hmm. should just title it like quick, somebody tell me I'm pretty. I mean, yes, there is a certain amount of narcissism involved, <laughs> but there's other factors that are also involved in this as well. Um, for some people, there's a strong need to belong. And uh, by posting and sharing with this, you sort of identify you're part of a group. There's a need for popularity to sort of indicate and reaffirm. Um, and for some people, it's, it also differs whether they're just posting a photograph of themselves or of themselves with a group. Um, and there is this tendency, obviously not now with COVID, but prior to that, there's this, you know, if, you're, if you go someplace, if you're at an event, if you're with people, there's also a social norm, an expectation 
that you will post photographs of yourself with other people. Uh, you record the event. It picks or it didn't happen. Um, and it almost becomes this thing where, you know, you go out to dinner, you, you get the food come, and everyone stops and takes a picture of the group. Look, we're all eating together. Then some people go on and take photographs of their food and post all of those, and you wind up with food porn, but that's a whole different discussion. Um, you know, but you do have this tendency to it's become a social norm, almost a politeness norm in some cases, that we will record the event and post it. Um, the event with, you know, this, this occurred, this happened, we were here. You know, it's funny you mentioned you mentioned food porn. I have a personal food porn stash, but I don't share it on uh-huh. social media. It's just for me. <laughs> or I'll share mm-hmm. it with like I'll share it with some close friends and be like, "Hey, look what I made for dinner." But uh, I, oh yeah, for me, it's like this. I mean, I I totally understand the whole food porn thing. I just don't personally need to share it on social media. I've got a group text with mm-hmm. about ten guys that I grew up with, and we're constantly every night mm-hmm. it's dinner picks, every night sharing yeah. dinner picks. Yeah. And for me, I kind well, of feel like the mm-hmm. group text. Is, is in some yeah. ways replacing the social network for many of us. Well, in some cases, yes, it is. And it's interesting how communi- one of the impacts of social media has been, you know, at any time we have a new form of media, it revolutionizes the amount of communication we have with others. Once upon a time, it was all oral, right, in tribes. We communicated with each other and we had incredible memories because we could remember everything because we know, very few people had the ability to write things down. Um, with the ease of text and letter writing and things like that, we started becoming, we journaled our lives and we would send incredibly long letters to people and people would communicate by letter from afar um, with, with each other, you know, miles away. And then with the phone, people then complained that, well, we lost the ability to, you know, write. No one's writing letters anymore. They're all communicating by phone. With text, that actually changed a bit. And now we're actually texting each other where well, we are writing each other and sending photographs. Uh, back and forth, and sort of the same thing with social media. But the ways in which the groups have changed, it differs. Um, so in some cases, you may have your group of 10 friends that you communicate with via your sort of text chat group. They're people you may already know in person, but you're able to maintain and develop your relationships using this sort of daily check-in. One of the things we know about sort of social interactions is, particularly with friendships and other types of, you know, types of relationships, it's the sort of, the ways in which you can maintain a friendship over time, um, in part are because you actually have sort of ease of communication. It's, It's easy to do. You don't have to necessarily go through these elaborate plans to get together and see each other, which is why, say, high school friendships or college friendships for some people um, are maintained or developed over time because these are people you see all the time. Um, you don't have to work to see them. And that sometimes these can actually fade over time or become more difficult when people get older is that you live in your own houses, you go to work, you may have work friends, but it becomes an effort to get together. What texting does is it actually kind of provides a way for you cook dinner and then you share with your friends, look what I did. And so you have that sort of ease of communication that becomes a pattern that doesn't take a huge amount of work and effort to schedule a time and drive somewhere and engage with someone and then, you know, take all of this as opposed to sort of the casual, look, the stew came out this time, whatever it is that you actually cooked. Um, and can share it with those friends, which allows you to maintain a relationship over time. So that's one option. If uh, social media is too much for you, you can just kind of create a group text with some of your closest friends and you can kind of rely on them 
for the uh, emotional support and affirmation that you might seek out in social media. That's just the first half of my conversation with Dr. Chalk. Coming up in part two, uh, we're going to go a little bit deeper into the neurological effects of social media on us. And then after that, I've got an Oregon University uh, professor who's going to talk to us uh, and convince us that despite all of the negative attention around social media, in his opinion, it's still a net positive on society. So don't miss that. 